I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown Podcast. Edward R. Murrow ate a very hearty cheddar. Spoiler, Corky. Murphy is already a hardened and bitter woman. <laughs> she would do sporty like sporty spice. Thin cigarette because of your dainty hands. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season two, episode 15, Subpoena Envy. Hey everyone, this is Jesse. And this is Lauren. And here we are with episode 15 of season two. Are we now we are over halfway, correct? Yes, we are. We are halfway through. This is the second half of our uh, season two recap, but also the beginning of our current season. That's confusing. Oh, I'm really excited to talk about this episode because this is one that we have been referencing since what since yes. like our very first episode. Yes, we have. And it's also uh, Murphy Brown's take on Orange is the New Black. Uh-huh. <laughs> I thought about that so many times with like just the the cliche and the tropes of women's prisons Mm -hmm. that I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. And almost all of these little tropes are dealt with at some point in Orange is the New Black. Yeah. It's like the 90s version because we didn't talk about it that much last time because it was, you know, more sort of New Year's themed. Mm -hmm. But this is the second episode of 1990. So we are now in the 90s officially. Finally. We here. As as I've mentioned, I have have an issue that this is really a 90s show, even though it's referred to Mm -hmm. as an 80s show because it started in 88. But the majority of Mm -hmm. the years and the zeitgeist of Murphy Brown is the 1990s. So in honor of the 90s and us being truly... 90s children, which is opposed to being called like an 80s baby or something like we are children who were raised in the 90s. Our idea of childhood is the 90s. Yes. So I found on MSN.com, 23 pop culture references only 90s kids can fully appreciate. Oh, no. And I want to give you a couple of the of the top. Yes, please. All right. So the first one that came up for me is life is like a box of chocolates. Oh, yes. Which is interesting. That is one that I found recently. The quote is actually incorrect kind of the Mandela effect of quotes, where there are quotes from either songs or movies that is not the way that we say them and know them. Oh, there's so many of them. I believe it's actually life was like a box of chocolates. Oh, no way. Uh-huh. Because it's her past tense. We got, yeah, baby. Oh, Austin Powers. Oh, yeah. I know. Okay, so here's some really funny thing. I'm in a show right now with a bunch of the undergraduates who I love so dearly. One of them was named Austin for Austin Powers. No. And he is a senior in college. Oh, Let that simmer. Also, I told him, I'm like, I love your parents. The great quote, as if. Ah, uh, clueless. Mm-hmm. A great memory for me as a 90s child is the Titanic mania. No one really understands. Oh, this is something I found really interesting was the discussion of, for male attracted people growing up in the 90s, there was no shortage of animated hotties to spark awakenings. <laughs> Like, the true thing about being a child in the 90s and being incredibly attracted to animated men. Because we got Prince Eric, we have Aladdin, we have Prince Adam or the Beast, if you're into the Beast. Wow. And then, of course, Dimitri from Anastasia. Well, yes. I mean, so many hot guys. In general, the one of the things that I love bringing up that recently Hassan Minhaj did a, a Deep Cuts, which is like kind of the behind the scenes YouTube from his show Mm -hmm. where he talks to the audience. He does other things. He did one recently with John Mulaney and they had a bunch of kids asking people to asking John Mulaney as kids who are kids of immigrants to try and explain things that are such a big deal in American pop culture that they don't understand because their parents came here at a different time. So it's just is not entrenched. I feel like you'd really appreciate the question of one of the kids being like, what is the deal with Barbra Streisand? Because people just don't get it. And like all of them are just like, we don't understand why Bruce Springsteen is a thing. One of my favorite versions of this is when people ask about Jerry Maguire. Oh, really? Because it just, if you were not there at the time, it doesn't really make sense why this movie was such a big deal. I was told that I had no heart because I did not like Jerry Maguire. I like, it gave us the great info about the weight of the human head. True. You had me at hello. Like some, it, I, I do have to say it was particular in the quote department. But as a movie, I rewatched it as an adult and I was like, eh. Thank you. I didn't get it. I didn't like it. Literally, one of my best friends in college, I mean, she was half kidding. She's like, you have no heart. I was like, I just, I don't like it. But also, it's such a 90s movie because Bonnie Hunt is in it. The queen of the 90s. Exactly. You can talk about Bonnie Hunt forever. Forever. And we have. 
So long story short, obviously, we're not going to get through all 23 on this list. And most of those were about movies. But there's a lot in there that are very fun. It includes like the Rachel haircut, Mm. various other things that just if you were not around. But it is such a great little time capsule of things that I keep thinking are still relevant today. Because now I'm at the age where uh, kids think I'm an oldie. So here we are in the 90s. (laughs) Nice to be here. Nice to be here. So this episode aired January 8th, 1990, so the second episode of the year, and it was written by Cy Duquesne and Denise Moss. Yay! Yay! So back to some names that we know, although technically they were still freelance at the time, as a reminder. And it's directed by Barnett Kelman. Oh, that guy. That guy. So we actually have two songs in the episode. One I'll talk about a little bit later because it's sung by Murphy. But our opening song is Bad Girl by The Miracles. This is one of those songs that you, again, we say this all the time, but it's just one of those songs that you don't realize how well you know until it plays. And then you know so many words. It is a 1959 doo-wop single by The Miracles. It was So here's something that's interesting. It was issued locally on the Motown record label, but it was nationally released by Chess Records because Motown didn't have a national distribution at the time. That's so funny. Interesting. I mean, yeah. There's a lot we could really go into the details of, like, the politics on this. But long story short, it's the only Miracle song released on the Motown label officially. The rest were on Tamla. And eventually, I I believe it was this song because I was reading about this, but eventually this is essentially the time period where it caused Gordy to decide to launch Motown nationally. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. But I, Mm -hmm. I wonder if the money from this also helped, too. Oh, they made lots of money on this. So this song was co-written by Gordy and Mr. Bill Smokey Robinson. You may have heard us speak about him. And it was the Miracle's first national chart hit. It reached 93 on the Billboard Hot 100. All right. So we start out with an opening that kind of takes me aback because it's the only real opening where I just can't recognize everything. I understand what they're from. They're Mm -hmm. from sort of this uh, genre of 1950s and 1960s, I'm guessing, but mostly 1950s female prison movies in black and white. Now, I started doing a little more research, and it's funny because I assumed that the Agnes Moorhead picture at the beginning, because we obviously know her because she's Andorra from Mm -hmm. Bewitched, but also I thought maybe that was from one of the movies she did with Humphrey Bogart. Oh, yeah. But it's not. Actually from a movie called Caged, which is considered by at least CriminalElement.com as the godmother of women in prison flicks. And most Mm. of the top, you know, women's flicks, as they called them, was women's prison flicks, top 10, top 50. This is usually number one, but it's just a montage of kind of that grindhouse flick slash prison movies. I was going to say, it's something I found interesting realizing as I looked at the at this montage that they were all fictional imprisonments. I was very intrigued by that choice just because they're, it makes me want to go down the rabbit hole about all of the women who were actually famously detained in yes. for various reasons like that. Like the, I'm also very intrigued by the choice of the uh, kind of white collar crime fellow inmates that Murphy has later in this episode. Oh, yeah. Considering, like, just how how many what we consider now ridiculous reasons that women could have been imprisoned in history. And so I, like, just on my own separate little sidebar, I definitely want to just go research all these things because there are just so many insane stories about reasons why women would get imprisoned for what were considered, you know, in imperfect acts. Yeah, and I feel like they, I think maybe they chose these because uh, looking back on them, they are kind of laughable. In mm-hmm. the way that they were depicting women in prison, and most of them were probably meant to be titillation for men, mm-hmm. most likely. And then we go to Murphy. Murphy is in her office, and we're watching a man on the television. Everybody is there. Jim, Corky, Frank, Miles. And they look bored out of their minds. I think at one point, uh, Miles just puts his hand on his arm and looks down. Even Jim just can't sort of feign excitement. And we see the man on the TV says, I thought you wanted to talk about the plant and now you want to talk about illegal dumping. And Murphy pauses the tape. <laughs> and Jim kind of like, I think he harumphs. Cannot take it anymore. He, no one can take it. But she wants everyone to sort of see his, you know, his shifty eyes and, and just how good she is. And the name of the company is Rayco. Does that sound familiar? It does. And I, I did not want to look it up because I felt like this was going to be a fun Surprise, because yes. it definitely is familiar to me. So Rayco is the company that her ex-husband, Jake, Aha! was fighting against in season one. That was my guess. 
ah. And so it took me a second. It took me, I think, on my second or third watch that I was like, wait, Rico. So familiar. That's familiar. Let me double check. It is. I knew that I had heard someone very handsome and alluring say something about it. Yeah. You know, you were just mm-hmm. like, ooh, what's that? Murphy is pretty much, you know, letting him know that she has a source that says that, you know, he was involved in illegal dumping. Uh, and Murphy has to pause it again. And she goes, ah, he never expected a source. Ha! And she sort of slaps Corky on the arm. I mean, she is beyond obnoxious in this scene. It's so fantastic. I feel personally victimized as I am someone who loves to show people things and I keep ruining it by stopping it to talk to them about what's happening. I feel very singled out right now. It really sort of feels like she's been playing and pausing this like for almost probably an hour or more with them. Like they really just seem like done with it. Yeah. She has to go up to the TV and point out this sort of this bead of sweat that's just sort of, you know, right on his face. She could watch this all day. And she has. She has, yes. Which makes Frank make the suggestion that he thinks it's time for lunch and they all agree and they run out. But she just thinks they're jealous and that they'll just have to watch it on the Emmys. Now, there are tons of clips from this episode in the trailer for the revival, mm-hmm. uh, mostly because of what is about to transpire. Yeah. So as they as she exits the office, this lovely young woman in a trench coat bounds off the elevator, really sweet, goes up to Murphy, and Murphy just knows right away who, who she must be. Oh, yeah. She just absolutely has to be a new possible secretary. Excuse me, Ms. Brown. She's like, oh, boy, here we go again. First of all, you're 20 minutes late. Not a good sign on your first day. And if you are any of the following, a smoker, a manic depressive, a trivia expert, an EST graduate, a fan of Donald Trump, or a collector of Nazi memorabilia, this isn't going to work. I do appreciate that even then we decided to put Donald Trump and Nazis next to each other in conversation. I know. It's just uncanny. Hmm. Yes. There's also a really great clip of the Golden Girls where uh, Dorothy takes down Donald Trump as well. So it wasn't just Murphy Brown. A lovely sidebar. I'm sure you saw the kerfuffle and to-do about him being cut out of Home Alone 2 in Canada and how he thought it was like Justin Trudeau being angry. Yeah. Did you hear why they did it? No, why? So they had already done that to that cut in 2014 for time in Canada. That had already been, that was a pre-cut choice oh. for time for ads makes sense. the reason why is because it was not plot specific yeah and also matt damon shared that the reason that he's in that is because donald trump had a clause in anything that wanted to film in one of his buildings yes. that he had to be featured in the movie somehow and that all you would have to do is film him have him walk through call him by name and then you could just cut it later in the film and that's how they got through with a bunch of different films in Trump buildings, Home Alone 2 just happened to not cut him because they didn't need to. Yeah. And so then Canada was like, well, unnecessary. In 2014, long before he was a relevant political party. That's amazing. I but love of course, that. he's sure that it's Trudeau. Of course. Absolutely. Just the biz, Donald. Yes, really. He should know already. I mean. So speaking of people who have Emmys, Candace Bergen... <laughs> <laughs> is pretty much put down by this woman because she says that she isn't there to work for her. Thank God. No, Murphy has been served to testify in front of a grand jury. I love your show. Bye. And she just sort of jaunts off to the elevator. She's really it perky is the cheeriest version of the you've been served in the history of television. Yeah, and she doesn't overdo it. Like, I really like no. her. I'm like, oh, yeah, thank you. I've been served. It was so refreshing. I'm like, I've seen that moment done so many times in movies and television. And that was just like one of the freshest takes I've ever seen. So the Justice Department uh, is having an investigation and Murphy is being subpoenaed to speak in front of a grand jury. They are after her source and everyone jumps up and down and it's a really great party. It's great. Yay, subpoena. It's a subpoena party. Jim congratulates Murphy. Slugger, you've brought honor to all of us at FYI. I'm so proud. That got me. I know, right? And then an extra shakes Murphy's hand. Yeah, A new girl. guy. New guy in the office. He could be Get a temp. It, dude. We have no idea who he is. But then Corky's high-pitched voice sort of breaks the air. I mean, really just like comedically high-pitched. Wait a minute! And then I wrote down, everyone quiets down because Miss Exposition is ready to speak. She pretty much yells at them, you know, you call yourself news people. Murphy, you can't tell them your source. And and Murphy agrees. She has to uphold journalistic integrity and freedom of the press. But Corky's like, but if you refuse, you'll go to jail. And Murphy just smiles and everyone chants, jail, jail, jail. But then, you know, Frank tries to congratulate her, but he's so unhappy. He's so jealous. He can't, 
he can't even really muster up any energy. It's so great to be happy for her. And then mm -hmm. for the first time ever, I think the title of an episode is spoken in the episode. Yeah. Because she accuses him of having subpoena envy. Dun, dun, dun. Mm -hmm. uh, which is only funnier if she says it to a man, honestly. So Frank really wants to be happy for her, but, you know, he, he just can't help it. He's always wanted the accolades, the media coverage, the dinner they throw for you at the press club. He wants to smell the subpoena, <laughs> which she lets him do because she's a good friend. But Miles is starting to agree with Corky that maybe they're, they're sort of jumping the gun. You know, it might not lead to jail. And Murphy asks Frank who the judge is. And apparently it's someone who she knows is chauvinistic, conservative, and sexist. I'm in. She smiles. Perfect cocktail. Exactly. She gives Miles a high five. The villagers rejoice. Now, it's interesting that Miles says that, you know, who goes to jail these days? So we actually looked it up. And I figured I'd find, you know, oh, some people from 1989 when they probably came up with the story ideas. Because mm -hmm. obviously this, you know, came out early in 1990, so it was filmed in 89. But funny enough, the majority in that time period, I mean, obviously, I'm sure not everything's listed. But according to a Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, there was actually a surge of journalists going to jail in 1990. And according to their list before that, there really wasn't anyone, anyone of, of merit, we would say. They claim it would have been before 1990, 1986. Interesting, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like the Justice Department is inspired by Murphy Brown. Yeah, perhaps. So three people in 1990, three journalists, I should say, went to jail. It was Jim Roche, which I hope I say correctly, from Stewart, Florida. There was a Libby, and again, I'm so bad with these names. Do we think it's Averitt? A-V-E-R-Y-T? Yeah, I think that's how I would say it. Yeah. From Corpus Christi, Texas. Also someone who I'm going to focus on because I think more people would be you know, familiar with his name is Brian Karam from San Antonio, Texas. You may know that name because he actually has done some Murphy-like things, including getting his press credentials revoked from the White House recently and then having to go to court to get them back. So for a little detail on what the case was is that he was jailed for contempt of court, which is what Murphy would have probably been jailed for, for refusing to reveal the name of a source who helped him arrange an interview with a suspect involved in killing a police officer. He also has been very outspoken. People may remember him also from the 1990s as being one of the first reporters to enter Kuwait City after liberation. So the other Murphy-like thing that he did recently was that, this is more from the revival, which I alluded to before, is that he was known for speaking back to Sarah Huckabee Sanders and speaking back in the sense of holding her to the fire for things that he felt were untrue. And then eventually after an altercation or a verbal altercation, I should say, in the Rose Garden with uh, Sebastian Gorka, they decided to pull his credentials. And at the time he was actually reporting for Playboy magazine. So he is someone who has definitely fought for free speech. And eventually after the 1990 incident where he was arrested and then finally released, in 1991, he received the National Press Club Freedom of the Press Award for exactly for refusing to reveal his source. So we find ourselves, what is it, the next day, we think? Or how much later is it since that previous? Definitely she's coming home from uh, court, I would say, right? Yes. It's, it's definitely a new day. We have new outfits. We've had time to arrange the office. We find ourselves panning down from a bye-bye jailbird sign to uh, Miles and Jim, Miles and Frank, are talking at the punch bowl table, which happens to be Murphy's secretary desk. It's punch bowl with snacks and so on. And Jim and Corky are over their shoulders. Everyone's in a great mood. Corky's in a lovely coral blouse. When Murphy appears from the elevator to cheers and confetti and streamers, to which she says, because essentially everyone else in the office swarms her with confetti, streamers, happiness. Mm -hmm. She has arrived. She is in a, an amazing kind of houndstooth tweed jacket with a matching scarf and what appears to be a brooch of a griffin on the lapel. Oh, I don't know. But eventually when we see the blouse underneath, I love the blouse. It's a great blouse. She comments to the people of the office, well, you people do anything not to work but then thanks them. It's a great send-off. And makes her way to the gang at her secretary desk, where Frank is a little bummed because this party could have been for him. And oh, Jim shuts him Frank. down, telling him that it's getting old. It really is, Frank. 
Miles is already there to assure Murphy that uh, legal is working on a strong appeal. They'll get a, get her out of there very quick, probably only a few hours. Murphy very confidently says that, you know, don't go too fast. She wants to make sure she gets enough time to down some chow in the mess hall because that will play better on Koppel. She's in full glorious martyrdom. Yeah. To which Corky from the back in the same kind of high-pitched voice says, you people are so strange. She hates the idea of Murphy being in prison. She says, they're going to call you names like fish and squeal, and then some cruel matron will throw you into some cement room. You'll come back a hard and embittered woman. And who will marry you then, Murphy? (laughs) To which Murphy says, chances are by then I'll be more interested in you, Corky. And what I love is in the background, so Murphy smirks, Miles in the background smirks, and Corky just kind of dashes away as quickly as possible from this conversation. Also, I thought, spoiler, Corky, Murphy is already a hardened and bitter woman. (laughs) Corky believes. She believes. And she is what we call hope springs eternal. And at that moment, as uh, Corky darts away from one direction and Murphy turns to the other, we see a a big man in what I call a plaid shirt and fishing vest. Because mm. it looks like every puffy vest that I grew up in the Midwest seeing on oh. men about to go fishing on the so lake. And he's in blue jeans. He's very blue collar. Like, very blue collar. He's looking very uncomfortable standing at the elevator. And he does that little, like, finger-to-the-lips gesture of, like, oh, I just kind of need to talk to you over here kind of move. Murphy looks very concerned and approaches what should, I guess, is stealthy, but not really. I mean, she was just in the, something I find very interesting about this moment, she's just been in the middle of the center of attention, and everyone just stops paying attention to her for this. I mean, it's a very, like, you know, entertainment trope of, like, all of a sudden, yeah. when she doesn't want to be seen, nobody's paying attention to her. But it's very in the middle of everything. Hence why she approaches and says, Mr. Fredrickson, it's very dangerous for you to be here. And he says he knows that it's dangerous, but he needs to talk to her. So she directs him quietly and quickly to her office, walking past the entire gang who has suddenly just not noticed that this is happening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they make their way into her office. She shuts the door and she says, Mr. Fredrickson, an anonymous short source should not be showing up at the news office. So... Surprise, surprise, this is obviously her anonymous source that she has been protecting. He says he knows that it's dangerous for him, but he heard about her going to jail for keeping him a secret, and it's really bothering him. He's a very, very sweet man. He's I just want to say, he's a very sweet man. And Murphy is doing her, I know it's, I know it's, you know, I'm going to jail, but it's all a part of her job. You know, the job gets a little dirty, and she is clearly very gleeful in her righteous statement that she starts to make about like, you know, her job gets a little dirty, but that's what she's here for. You know, like this is what she does. And this is so great because then it sets up the scene at the end when she wants to get out of jail. Uh Uh-huh. And he's like, well, no, like I, you were right. She convinces him. She does. And even at the end of the scene, she gives the face where she knows she's kind of like putting it on really thick. She knows that she needs to do this as a political statement and she's kind of using him. Well, and what's great about so I what I love about this is that she is so living in this like thick, righteous martyrdom that mm-hmm. she just she truly is just laying it on. And he is like, okay. I mean, bless Mr. Fredrickson. He is a true blue blue-collar trope in that he is very gullible and just wants to do the right thing. And he trusts this very educated, fancy woman to tell him what the right thing is. And, you know, he clearly was just doing the right thing when he came to her. And so he, you know, we can tell she's very gleeful and about how hard her job is, but he takes it very seriously. And he says he would not have, he didn't know when he went to talk to her that it would land her in the bin. He says, you know, he's just, he needs to do the right thing. He's going to go to the judge. He's going to come forward right now. And you can see her just be like, no, 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 and sits him down in the chair to which the audience immediately starts laughing because they all are figuring out this is not just altruistic integrity here. You know, for the first time, uh, in a long time, we can see the dartboard. Uh-huh. It says parking for customers only. I feel like we've seen that one before, actually. But I think so. Yeah, I think that's one of the first ones. But I do enjoy because, you know, she's about to go to essentially a country club. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she sits him down in the chair and she start, She launches into this, again, very righteous statement of that, you know, if if he goes forward, his days of chipping and handling would be over. I mean, didn't he say he was up about to be up for a promotion? He can kiss that goodbye. It doesn't seem right, right? What is right? What could be more right than providing for your family? And then tries to dig his wife's name out of her memory. Brenda, right? And how many children do you do you have? Four? Five? 
no, he has one child. Mm-hmm. She clearly has built this blue collar defense up for herself that this is a this is a working man with many mouths to feed and like she's written the copy for herself and she goes one right he has no siblings to depend upon your child needs you mr frederickson and then she you know says this is her job it's what she's paid to do he should go back to work and stop worrying about her she'll be fine famous last words famous famous last words Again, this is hook, line, and sinker. Mr. Fredrickson is in with her on this now. And he gets ready to leave and he turns around and says, Miss Brown, you are a, you're a remarkable woman. I'll never forget about this. Oh, go on. <laughs> and truly, in like famous last words, he'll never forget about this speech she made to him. She's done her job far too well. But I, I love that we leave on that moment of, of Murphy that... You know, she knows what she's done is wrong. Uh huh. You know, and she's a little uncomfortable. I think they could have just cut with like, I, yeah, no, this is this is what I don't oh, care. Oh, go on. Yeah, it's 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 great that we know that she's uh not quite in line with what she's doing. That little extra linger. Exactly. Yeah. So we arrive to Murphy's jail, mm-hmm. which looks like the rec room of what I would call a low cost country club or a dorm room, mm-hmm. a little, little common area for a dorm room. There are people playing cards, there's a TV, a treadmill, and Murphy's being shown around by what I can only describe looks like a cruise director on the love boat. Little name tag, a clipboard. She has this really adorable sort of a high-pitched voice like she's an 80s gangster mall. Also an Asian American woman, which is very rare on Murphy Brown and on Mm -hmm. television in general at this time, which is great. I just love her. She's like, and this is where the ladies like to socialize and when they're (laughs) they're doing other things like activities. (laughs) She's Mm -hmm. so adorable. And I remember her from other things. And I don't know if this is just like was her thing, but she talks like this in almost everything I saw her in. It's very natural, Mm -hmm. which means it comes from a, you know, a place of truth. But Murphy thinks that there's been a mistake. You know, she was supposed to go to jail. So it's called Nesselbrook. It's a federal minimum security prison. And the Board of Corrections felt that someone of her stature would feel safer in a place like this than in the county lockup. Murphy is disappointed. You know, she was looking for some some hard time. The pen up the river, the big house. But actually, she's in Bungalow 3. <laughs> I love that it's bungalows. <laughs> bungalow 3, past the tennis courts and before the swimming pool. And dinner is at 6 in the Monticello room. <laughs> and she just hands her like a pamphlet. It is straight up cruise directing. <laughs> it is totally cruise director. And so the first person um, to introduce herself is a brunette in a great blue sweater and skirt. And she looks like she's walked out of a Benetton ad. Oh, yes. The collar, the hair pulled back. And she's very excited. She is in for insider trading. Uh, So the brunette's name is Beth, Beth Sherman. Beth then introduced a a cute blonde mom type in yellows. She's in for eight counts of embezzlement. Beth introduces her that way. Don't do that. She didn't do it. That's pretty much, I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And then the third person we meet is Millicent Bain, an amazing woman with a gravitas voice and Texas hair. And she believes that she and Murphy has met before. And Murphy goes, right, Congresswoman Bain. She siphoned half a million dollars from a school bond into her reelection campaign. But that was a long time ago because now she's found the Lord. So everything is good. But Murphy assures these three women, these three amazing women who we're going to get into in a bit, that she is only in there for a few hours, enough time to have her press conference. It's, you know, a First Amendment thing. Very confident. Beth updates Murphy on this place, because Murphy's obviously really confused, that now that more women are committing white-collar crime, isn't it wonderful? We're finally starting up the economic ladder. And then Millie, she goes, we've come a long way, baby. So Congresswoman Bain is actually quoting a famous 1968 uh, Virginia Slims ad. Oh my gosh, yes, she is. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it used to be a joke a lot through a lot of 80s and probably even 70s I don't know but growing up to hear someone go we've come a long way baby and kind of be like sarcastic about it but it was a campaign for Virginia Slims cigarettes for women and their small dainty hands so these ads were really kind of a Madison Avenue reaction to the women's movement that's so funny that is one of those references that I have made so many times and I've because of its age, I truly did not even remember where it was from. But when you say that, I, I totally know that reference. 
and it definitely was through the 70s, I know that my grandmother had like old magazines and things like that, is that it was depicting pictures of women from like 1913 and 1910. And then women today, I mean, there was one ad I saw in 1913, you know, who was kicked off a train for smoking. Yeah. Because women weren't allowed to. But now you can smoke and do whatever you want. Buy Virginia Slims. Yeah. So we just want to quickly talk about two of these actresses. This is one of the rare episodes where other women on the show, other than Corky and Murphy, get some really great meaty stuff. Yeah. So, Jesse, do you want to talk about Sydney first? Oh, Sydney is played by the glorious Nancy Lenahan. She is one of those actresses that we are blessed with on this show that I it's hard to pin down which performance of hers is the one that made me know her and love her. She has played almost everyone's mom throughout mm-hmm. the 80s and the 90s. As you see in this episode, she is really great at doing some of these adorable characters in really dark humor. One of the things that comes to mind for me is seeing her in uh, Gilmore Girls. She's in the episode where they go and visit Harvard. And then uh, her in Pleasantville as playing one of those women. Like that particular type of humor, especially where she's very truthfully playing this kind of stereotype, just like she is in this episode, but within a kind of dark commentary is incredible. She is able to do this voice and seem very lovable while at the same time in context is just not right. She plays a character in Catch Me If You Can. Recently, you may know her from... She guested for, I think, about 10 or 11 episodes on Veep. She previously worked with Julia Louis-Dreyfus on The New Adventures of Old Christine, where she guested for about six episodes. I mean, she was in My Name is Earl. She was in Married to the Kellys. She's in every show that you have seen (laughs) since the 80s. This is the great thing. This episode is just like people who are like, oh, I know you from everything when I was growing up. And like you see her face and you immediately, like, she's so funny. She's so precious. She was in How I Met Your Mother, My Name is Earl. As far as movies, Pleasantville, Catch Me If You Can, The Savages. Oh, she was great in The Savages. One of my favorite little pieces of trivia about her is that, and this is very of the 80s and 90s, she provided the speaking and singing voice for Helen Henney, who is a character at Chuck E. Cheese. No. Yes. She was the voice of Helen Henney at the Chuck E. Cheese Pizza Theater restaurants. I just remember her like she was a nun on The Golden Girls. Mm -hmm. She's in Mad About You. She's an Ellen. Yep. Tracy Ullman. Everything. ER, Buffy, the Vampire Slayer. It's amazing. Honestly, this woman kind of has my dream career. Like, I just want to play all the moms and have longevity. That's what this woman has done. She's incredible. She's so funny. And she's she's in production on things right now. Like, she's wonderful. So Beth is played by Christine Rose, who is someone that, whose career that I would love to have. She is another one of those great character actresses like Nancy, who's just been in sort of everything in the 80s and the 90s. You knew her face, but you may not have known her name. I first started to become a big fan of hers because of the series Heroes. So many people will probably know her best as Angela Petrelli, the matriarch of the Petrelli family on Heroes. I actually feel, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but no matter how you feel about the series in general, I feel that Angela is one of my favorite female characters in sci-fi. I love what they did with her. I love complicated characters. I love older women, obviously. And so to have this such great juicy part. Uh, yeah of this manipulative mother. And I won't give everything away if you do want to go through the series. It's, it's actually very binge-worthy. So Christine started as a theater actress in New York, and I'm bringing this up for something that's going to come up later. Her biggest credit in New York is actually a Wendy Wasserstein play called Isn't It Romantic, which we've mentioned before. She was the lead in that at Playwrights Horizon. Big fan of Wendy Wasserstein. But a replacement in that show was Jay Thomas at some point. So I'm not sure if they work together, but that's a, a show that we've mentioned before. Now, when... I was in the midst of watching Heroes. A friend of mine was working a charity event. And she goes, you know, if I I see her, I'm going to have her call you. Because what I actually had done was I had heard Christine talk about that she had gone back to school when she was 50 because she thought the jobs were going to dry up. It was just before she got Heroes. And she wrote her thesis where she interviewed all of the amazing people that she worked with in New York, from Wendy Wasserstein to Lloyd Richards. And her thesis was the actor's role in American new play development. And she felt that it was like jazz and that they were all riffing off each other for these new plays. And so it was a collaborative effort between the playwright, the director, and the actor. And I thought, that sounds fascinating. I would love to read that. And a different friend of mine who was in the academic world said, oh, well, if it's a thesis, you can have any library send it to you and you can read it at the library. Okay, I had it sent to the Performing Arts Library in New York. 
I read it. And so my other friend who was working this event went up to her and said, my friend read your thesis. Can you talk to her on the phone? Oh. Now I, of course, went, please don't ask her to call me. Please don't. I was mortified. When the phone rang, I knew that I could not not pick it up. Yeah. So I talked to Christine for about five to eight minutes. She was lovely. But one of the stories she told me was that she remembered finding a dollar on the ground when she was the starving artist in New York and how excited she was that she got to buy a bottle of wine. Mm. And I just sort of love that story. And so she wanted she wanted me to know that I should, you know, as, as a young performer. I love seeing people who have, quote unquote, I mean, I hate using this phrase, but quote unquote, made it. Mm, yes. I have a Many different YouTube holes I love to go down, but sometimes I love to go down the what the stars like face routine is videos when they do them for like Vogue or Elle or any of those things. And sometimes it's so fascinating to see like the products that people buy just because now they have the money. Like there's this one skincare brand, Dr. Barbara Strum, that is just very famous yes. with celebrities and it's way mm. overpriced and insane. And the La Mer's and that kind of stuff. And some of them you're like, okay, it's priced because the products are, the ingredients are really hard to get or whatever, but sometimes it's just brand recognition. But I love watching the people that you see still use the like drugstore brand that mm, they love yes. because that is the thing that like they'll have the one pricey thing and they'll be like, but you know what? This is always like Pond's cold cream continues to work. And like those types of things that I just find so humanizing in people who remember where they came from and don't just take for granted that just because you can spend, you will spend. I love the people who remember being excited because they found the dollar on the street, which meant they got some ramen that day. And it's so nice to hear from people who are able to recognize that and encourage that, that go get them spirit. Yeah. And most recently, you may know her. She was a nurse in Sharp Objects. Oh, yeah. She had a recurring role on this show called Trial and Error, which if you don't know Trial and Error, it is a absolute gem. Two season series. She was in the first season. She's drunk the entire time. She was in Star Trek The Next Generation as well as Heroes. And also another great story about her real quick is that, you know, she was brought onto Heroes as a guest star in the pilot. She was not a series regular. And she was one of the older characters on the show who just got a lot of popularity and the writers loved writing for them. And there was this whole article I remember in Variety that, you know, they then became series regulars, but they didn't have to go through the same vetting process that you would if you were series regulars. And they were able to kind of go under the wire and just just because they were great actors. And then all of a sudden, you know, be particularly in the revival of the show, almost like the star. But you also may know her from... Sabrina the Teenage Witch, she also was Christopher's mom on Gilmore Girls. She does drama and comedy really well. And another person from our childhood that has a really great, some really great moments in this episode. Let's go back to the episode. Murphy is fed up. She said summer camps that are harder than this place. And Beth seems rather offended by this. You know, I realized at this point that she's been holding a teacup the entire time. She wants Murphy to know that they have jobs and it is part of the rehabilitation. Sydney works in the videotape library. No one rewinds. They are such animals. That's another, speaking of your blockbuster history, such a 90s reference of Be Kind. It really is. You know, when I, I worked there, it was my job to call people who hadn't returned their copies to the right location. You know they didn't rewind. No, they didn't. And I had to explain to people that they had to go over to Cranford and get their copy of Jerry Maguire and bring it to the... Westfield version of Blockbuster. What a full circle conversation for us this is. Uh, Sydney asks if Murphy would like to join them for crocheting, which is about to start. They are making lap ropes for a convalescent home. Just a little thing we do to give something back to society. But, you know, Murphy isn't impressed. She She's going to pass. She used to go prep for her interview. She'll leave them to their arts and crafts. And then Lisbeth with maybe she can knit a shovel and dig her way out. So we're in the next day. And she's finally going to receive some visitors. The first two to enter the, what is clearly, I, I don't know, I guess the rec room of the, of the prison are Jim and Corky. And we start with Jim bursting his way in saying, this can't be the right place. There's an ice sculpture class on the front lawn, for God's sake. Followed by Corky, who is pointedly keeping her head down as she makes her way into this room. And Murphy greets them. Hi, guys. Oh, they, they must be here for the, the press conference. It's, it's going to be a thing. And Corky, in a very studied monotone, says, We've come to lend you our moral support, Murphy. You'll understand if I don't look up. I've never been in a prison before, and I'm trying to deal with my fear and disgust. 
Faith kills it in this moment of I just... I know, she does. Oh, it's she so She likes great. the carpet, though. Everyone looks at her kind of strange. And this is when Frank and Miles enter. And Frank goes, this is nice. And then proceeds to say what we are all thinking, which is that it, it kind of puts a damper on the whole martyr thing. Yeah, I was like, two points for, for Frank. Nailed it, Frank. You know your friend. Murphy ignores him, goes to Miles. She wants to know where the press is setting up and hoping that it's not in front of the tennis courts. And Miles says, funny thing, they're not showing up. And he says, First Amendment stories are pretty hot this week. Apparently, a performance arts student in Arkansas did an erotic interpretation of The Last Supper. The university pulled his grant, and now he's suing. To which Murphy goes, so? And Jim, in one of my favorite lines, (laughs) says, so a naked Pontius Pilate makes better copy than an anchorwoman doing time in the faculty lounge at Bryn Mawr. For those who don't realize, Bryn Mawr is a liberal arts college in Pennsylvania, one of the Seven Sisters. This was also my favorite joke. I wrote it down as my favorite joke as well. It is so good. He then proceeds to say, he hates this place, Murphy. How can you defend the Constitution from a place that serves Brie? Edward R. Murrow never ate Brie. Do we know that, though? I think uh, he maybe I feel Brie. like he did. But I don't think Jim would ever want to know that. No, never want to know. Edward R. Murrow ate a very hearty cheddar at most. Yes, definitely a cheddar person. I love that Murphy is getting very annoyed. But she's like, hey, she is sorry. But how do they think she feels? I'm sitting here with the committee to free Ivan Boski. Which, for those who don't know who this is, it's a very specific poll, a very of the time. He played a prominent role in an insider trading scandal. We're furthering the fact that she is surrounded by people who are essentially soft criminals. <laughs> very cushy crimes here. And what I love is then, in her annoyance, she turns around and yells at Corky to stop looking at the floor. And Corky says she can't help it. She loves their carpet. This is such a great ongoing thing of people who appear to believe the gravity of the prison and then get turned by how nice it is. Though my favorite thing is the fact that she has her head literally turned by fashion. Yes, always. Oh, it's coming. Murphy tries to say, this really stinks. Come on, let's just go. And Miles is a little awkward to say she can't quite go yet. And oh, come on, did the appeal not come through? Miles tries to calm her, says he's sure it won't be much longer. You know, that darn legal system. It's just a little trickier than we thought. Oh, you've got one of those stride masters. Miles has noticed the treadmill in the back corner. Mm. I, I forgot the part. phrase stride masters. Okay, is that that's what he's saying? Yeah, stride master. It was, a, it was a type of treadmill. Oh, interesting. This begins a wonderful physical comedy routine by Grant Shod in the background with Murphy as he uh, tries out the new treadmill. As they're making their way to the treadmill, an inmate walks by, and as uh, Lauren earlier mentioned, Corky has her head literally turned by fashion. Can I get one in the gift shop? The fact that it's a gift I shop know, is also best. hilarious. But, like, I generally believe that Corky would wear this shirt unironically. Yes. Oh, absolutely. It's just so cute. It's so cute. I love the idea of Corky in a t-shirt is a kind of costume moment. Mm -hmm. Like, she'd be like, look at me. I'm like, I've got this, like, cute athletic look. Yeah. I don't know what she would wear. Maybe around the house? Maybe jogging? Oh, no. I feel like she would wear it to something where she's supposed to, like, fit in among the, the more casual people. Like, she'd have, like, a cute, like like a ponytail up but with like the the scarf in it like I, but i think it would be like a costume kind of moment for her look i'm sporty she would do sporty like sporty spice where it's it's a look so at this time miles is now on the treadmill walking murphy comes to him and says she doesn't want to stay here that this is one of my favorite visual gags in things is when somebody's trying to talk to somebody who's on a treadmill and like the weird angle you have to stand to get them She says she doesn't want to stay here. They make them get up at seven. They have to make their bed. She has a roommate who has an autographed picture of Leona Helmsley, which for those of you who don't know, notoriously tyrannical businesswoman known as the queen of mean and went to jail. Miles is brushing her off. He's in the middle of uh, checking his pulse, saying, you know, know, all she has to do is just be patient and and wait it out. This thing is great. Let's see what this does. Whoa. And he starts jogging. The checking his pulse thing is my, my second favorite thing he does in this scene. I know what my favorite is. It's coming up. What I enjoy about this moment is I feel like maybe if Miles worked out more, he might have less anxiety because he's so chill in the distraction of this moment. He is. And he's got a good stride going. That's what I was thinking. He's giving me a little bit of like Goldie Hawn in First Wives Club when she's working out and gets all (laughs) of her best calm business ideas. Like, I feel like this is what Miles is missing is like just a good workout regimen. So Murphy is protesting as Miles is further ignoring her. I can't tell, because he's laughing at her being like, oh, I know, it's horrible in here. I might have to go use the sauna afterwards. But there's something about when he first starts laughing after he starts jogging that I believe is Grant laughing. 
Oh, most likely. And it turns into Miles laughing at her. But there's definitely a moment where I was like, I just see Grant laughing right now. (laughs) It's very endearing. Well, I love that she goes, tomorrow I have to get a job. He says, how bad can a job here be? And this is when Miles says the greatest moment of doing the childish thing where you ride off the end of the treadmill. And then he lands and sticks the dismount like a gymnast (laughs) with his arms up. I have to think that Grant made that up. Oh, he 100%. He was just messing around and did that. And I love it. So what could possibly be the worst job for Murphy Brown? Oh, I don't know. The worst job. The nightmare job Hmm. to be a secretary. This is genius. And I actually have a memory of watching this episode and not understanding why everyone thought it was so funny. (laughs) Because I'd only seen a couple of episodes in which she really didn't have a secretary problem. And I watched, I was like, oh my God. I was like, I don't get it. Why is the audience going crazy? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's why. So she's the secretary for the warden and she's trying to take a message and she sort of grabs this sort of scrunched up paper and the audience is going crazy. She's really upset because the guy's talking really fast. She doesn't know shorthand. She she struggles to spell reprieve correctly, Uh which is a joke within itself. Murphy is pretty much being Murphy, and then the person at the other end is gone, and she goes, Governor? Still there? So someone's getting executed because Murphy couldn't take a message. So the warden is not happy. It seems that Murphy uh, was asked to type a letter, and she made a few changes. The warden needs to remind her that she shouldn't punch up a letter revoking someone's parole. (laughs) Probably. Also, there are typos in it. Seems a little un-Murphy like We find out through this time that Murphy's actually been there for a week. So she reminds Murphy that, you know, she could be gutting fish instead of having this job. And then Murphy grumbles something under her breath. Do you know what she says? Yeah, I don't think I got it. Yeah. Yeah, Okay, good. So not just me. And then Eldon arrives. He goes, hey there, chain gang girl. He has arrived with a change of clothes. Also, Eldon is admiring the colors in the East Wing. Mm -hmm. Now, apparently, Eldon has brought the clothes on the hanger. And these don't look like Murphy's clothes, but the first thing she pulls out is a leopard mini dress, which looks like something that Felicia would wear. Absolutely. Which, of course, Eldon loves. You know, he doesn't know why she doesn't wear this more. It was behind all of her boxy suits. It's a Halloween costume from 10 years ago. Murphy went as a hooker. And then next is a garter belt. She wanted pantyhose, but Eldon lets her know that men hate pantyhose. And then proceeds to do a monologue that sounds a little bit like uh, Richard Dreyfuss in The Goodbye Girl. Uh Uh-huh. About how he doesn't like the shriveled up legs hanging over the shower rod. They're like creatures. They're alive. The intercom buzzes and Murphy tells it to shut up. Eldon adds that her rehabilitation has uh, a long way to go. (laughs) He tells her not to worry about coming back because he's taken the floorboards out of her foyer. And he doesn't think she can make the jump. Then the warden comes out and says that they obviously have to review how the intercom procedure works. She needs lunch reservations at one and her coffee is stale. And then Murphy almost gets caught pretending to throw the mug at her. Uh But the warden, of course, catches for doing it. And then Murphy pulls out a little black book and secretly makes a phone call. It's to Mr. Fredrickson, her source. So cut to what I'm assuming is the next day, probably. Murphy is hanging out with her new prison girl gang, as we're going to call it. Mm -hmm. They're playing a very apt game of Monopoly. I hate Monopoly. It is... A unique game with an interesting history that we have spoken about before. It never ends. And she is singing a very perfect song, which is Money, parenthetical, That's What I Want, which has a very fun history of being. We talked earlier about uh, Barry Gordy uh, starting the Motown label. It was the first hit record for Gordy's Motown Enterprise. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. And it's also um, The Miracles. It's written by Smokey, right? Well, no, it's uh, written by oh. Barry Gordy and Janie, and Janie Bradford. Oh, I didn't know that. Yep. <gasps> written by them. It was Barrett Strong recorded it in 1959 as a single for the Tamla oh. label and distributed nationally by Anna Records. Many artists, artists later recorded it, including The Beatles in 1963 and The Flying Lizards in 79. But I thought that was really fun how we just talked about Barry Gordy going off to create the Motown like full label. This was their first hit. Yeah, it's like the history of Motown is in the series and they didn't know it. <laughs> I'm telling you, like we have to get like a Motown expert on here to just work with us through the series. It's we incredible. Do. Yes, we would love that. If anyone knows anyone, please 
contact us. Yeah, we love knowing this stuff, but we do not want to be the authorities. We want someone else to come in and give us all that Please. info because we live for mm-hmm. it. What I love about this is that she looks like a mechanic's wife from an 80s sitcom. Like She is in all dirty blue denim. Her hair is wild under a matching denim hat. She just looks like, I mean, clearly she is trying to look rough. Yeah, she's playing it up for uh, Mr. Uh, Fredrickson. Well, and she looks very blue collar, <laughs> something that clearly is supposed to speak to him, surrounded by all these very white collar people. She's playing Monopoly. We get a ha as co- the congressman lands on boardwalk with one very big red hotel. Rent will be $2,000, which um, sadly is would be very cheap for boardwalk at this point. The congresswoman says, listen, Murphy. She wants to cut some sort of deal. She apparently had to liquidate her assets to fend off Beth's hostile takeover of Marvin Gardens. I love all of them in this scene. They're all fantastic. Oh, they're great. I love them living their, like, Monopoly avatars. <laughs> yeah, they're all playing um, themselves in what they were had problems with in real life, and they're all just so, so great. They're oh. hysterical. I love Beth's like, well, excuse me, I was just trying to thin out our economy's bloated middle management. <laughs> as she and I love that Christine as Beth is just she's like looking at the at the cards or her money as uh-huh. she's talking like she won't even look at the congresswoman. Oh, it's great! It's so good. And Murphy in the middle of their spat notices Sydney's doing a little something. She says, "Whoa, wait a minute, Sin- Sydney, what are you doing?" Sydney is over with the bank, shuffling some things around, trying to turn her back to everyone. And she goes, oh, "I'm just making change." To which Murphy says, "Making change, my eye. You're skimming money off the bank, and you're real good at that, aren't you?" To which Sydney, in her classic voice, says, no, I didn't do it. <laughs> it's such a good throwback. It's Nancy's so good in this. Ugh. Murphy gives up and assures the congresswoman that she will bail her out from the private sector <laughs> and goes back to the game and begins singing, money, that's what I want. And Beth becomes the original table flipper. She starts mm. screaming, knocking things aside and turns the entire fl- table over stands up and just says, I'm out, along with everybody else who walks away. What's such a great comic moment. It is so excessive. (laughs) Yes, it's very Murphy-like, and it's usually a comedic moment, like I was saying, we don't get from guest stars on the show. Murphy would do that. Murphy would do that. Corky might do that, Mm -hmm. but never really a guest star, particularly a woman. And (sighs) And in opposition of Murphy— Yes, and I but I love the way that Christine plays it because she just she just goes crazy. She throws everything, she flips the table and then just goes, I'm out. And everyone else is like, Yeah, me too. And they all leave Murphy. I want a show with Beth. I know. I mean, I want any show with Christine Rose. I just I would like a spin-off with Beth. Yeah, exactly. I love that with the gang, the girl gang. Mm-hmm. Murphy calls back after them, quitters. And at that moment, sweet Mr. Fredrickson arrives in a lovely suit. Yes. He dressed up. I like that she's dressed down to blue collar. He's dressed up to white collar. Yeah. And he walks in. He goes, so this is where they put you. It's nice. (laughs) (laughs) It's Oh, he's such a perfect foil for her because he still carries that severity. And then, oh, it's nice. And what, what, again, with these great guest stars in this episode, one of those things that sometimes gets missed in shows is that you have an ongoing kind of joke style of the regulars that the guests don't always get to get plugged into because they're brand new. All of these guest stars are playing the same type of comedy, including line reads as the regulars. Yeah. Because I think usually you would have, and this happened a lot on 30 Rock, Mm -hmm. where it was the series regulars who were kind of over the top and Mm -hmm. then they were playing against the straight characters. And I mean that in a straight man, straight woman comedy Mm -hmm. who were playing off their craziness. So they were sort of the more reality-based like, what is going on? And then reacting off of Murphy's craziness or Frank's over the top mm-hmm. or Miles. And so we actually do have characters who are in the same comic vein as our series yeah. regulars. And it's really amazing and refreshing. Yeah, like Mr. Fredrickson is doing the same type of joke that Frank and Miles just were. It's such a great payoff and it's just done so beautifully. So kudos to direction as well on Barnett's part. That also being said, I think it might also have to do with the comedy, you know, because the show's being written as they go along, and I'm sure they were tailoring it to them. But you have people in this episode that were steadily working in sitcoms in the 80s. So they're just pros. They know what they're doing. They know what they're doing. They're paying attention. And also, clearly, the direction on Barnett's part is solid in keeping that through line. So, and keeping that joke alive. And 
Murphy is concerned. She's like, don't be fooled. It's still a jail. She's still a prisoner stripped of her personal freedoms. Meanwhile, Edna, the quote-unquote guard, is still standing there. She goes, do you mind, Edna? We'd like a little privacy. <laughs> so they sit down. And what I like is that they're sitting in, uh, at a table with a backgammon board. And there's something I really love about yes. them being next to a black and white board while they're talking about something that she's trying to make black and white. <laughs> so she says, they have a little problem. Now, she's been in there, and originally their decision to not reveal him for her to go to jail and to keep him secret made sense. But now, she tells him, apparently they're having a trouble bringing an indictment against Reiko, and it appears the bad guys are going to get away with it. That very mm. much concerns Mr. Fredrickson. So she says, well, they need to do something. He agrees, and she asks if he has any ideas, and he sits there, no, this clearly is disappointing, Murphy, so she's going to lead him a little bit. She says, all right, well, we, I guess we could sort through it. And she says, well, I guess I could cave and give your name to the judge, but but that would be turning my back on the freedom of the press. So Candace has this great, like, pained mental processing and, like, putting her hand to her face. And that leaves us with what? What? It's just, it's such great <laughs> I know, it's so extra great. acting. She's, yeah, she's trying to get him to make it seem like it was his idea. Yeah, you know, and she's so pained because, of course, you know, she can't do, obviously, she can't do that thing. So, oh, she'll just suffer over here and he's not getting it, and he's not getting it. She says, hey, you know what this is starting to sound like? It's like your original instinct was right that you can come forward and nail these guys, really nail them. Doesn't that sound right? And you see Mr. Fredrickson and... You know, he seems to be picking up what she's throwing down in the same way he did at the beginning of the episode, but no, not really. No, coming for not coming forward is the best thing he ever did. Apparently, that promotion they talked about happened. He got a company car. He got four weeks of vacation. He got brand new power tools and a stereo station. He stands up and he starts looking at the stereo situation next to the treadmill behind them. And says, "Well, it's not as nice as the as the one they've got here, but it is nice." <laughs> and. Now she's starting to lose him. She says, you know, if he doesn't come forward, she'll just be stuck in here waiting. And Mr. Fredrickson is hit by that. He's, you know, he looks down at the ground and, you know, she's right. That is the one thing that's still really been bothering him. The fact that she's stuck in this place. But this place is nice. <laughs> she says, you don't understand. It's not that nice. Last night her cable went out. Mr. Fredrickson is very sorry. And he knows that his testifying would speed things up. But he's come too far to do that. He hopes she'll understand. And he starts, and he, and he leaves the room. She follows him into the hallway. She says, no, she doesn't understand. And she starts to look desperate. And Candace Bergen does this amazing mini spiral, as she says. She doesn't mm -hmm. understand. Come back here, you little rat. She spirals a little more. You snitch. She starts to lose a little more. Stooly. And kind of starts to make her way back into the room looking lost and a little crazed. And then we find her. And before we go to real spiraling off the rails Murphy, I realized what I think I should mention is that of those three people in 1990 who were sent to jail, Tim Roche is the one who spent the most days in jail. He was sentenced to 30 days for criminal contempt, but actually served 18 days in 1993. And Murphy's been there for a couple of weeks, right? Mm -hmm. As far as we know. So we cut to Murphy singing tomorrow from a little musical called Annie. The most wholesome of musicals because she's lost it. She has apparently taken up the crocheting quite well. It looks like whatever she is knitting, perhaps a scarf, goes the length of half the room. It reminds me of the scarf I knitted once after a bad breakup when I needed to stay off social media. So I knitted a oh. very long scarf that I still wear to this day. I, it's a very long, like, double, what am I trying, double circular scarf now. Oh, that sounds lovely. Beth is sort of looking at her. She's also wearing an amazing dark teal or peacock blue outfit. The audience is going crazy. Now, they might be going crazy, though, because this is a very famous outtake. I can't find the clip anymore, but we've talked about this on the show, that this is actually a moment where... Candace and Grant could not keep it together. And there are many times in the show where we've talked about they would just look at each other and just start laughing. This section took them 12 minutes to film. I mean, that's probably an estimation. It could be a bit of an exaggeration, but they did it. They had to do it so many times that no one thought it was funny anymore because that's a long day. And I think at one point he does smile and then like holds it. It's like he's really trying. But particularly when he walks up to Murphy and she goes, Grandpa? That was apparently when they would all both lose it. 
Now, of course, he is brought in by our cruise director, Ivy. And Ivy just wants to warn, you know, Miles to keep his voice down. You know, we don't want to startle her. So, and what's great is he follows what I really is kind of like a yellow brick road of crocheting with his eye and the, the camera pans it. And so we get that sort of big laugh of how big it is. And he leans down. He's like, Murphy, I have good news. Happy news. It's like she's dying. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, oh, grandma. The judge heard her appeal and he granted her release. He said the First Amendment outweighed the court's need for the information. Do you understand? It's over. After all these weeks, Murphy's goes, she's free. He's, he's going to take her home. And I wrote down, it's like the best ABC TV movie from the 80s. It's all so dramatic. We're, we're going to go home. It's so real. It's like Brian's song right now. Oh, yes, that's so good. But first, Murphy needs to say goodbye. And she sort of drags this sort of scarf carcass with her. <laughs> also, she's wearing very unlike Murphy bathrobe and pajamas. And it looks like she's been wearing them for many, many days. Mm -hmm. um, so she says goodbye to the ladies who really could care less. And she goes into um, a little speech, you know, that she wants them to know that freedom of the press is not just an abstract principle. It's the backbone of our society. And she takes off her glasses and walks further ahead as if there is an audience there. She goes, I believe it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who once said, and someone yells, sit down, you're blocking the TV. To which Murphy turns to Miles and says that she's ready to go. Then the warden shows up, but the warden warns her that they have a big, big problem. She owes them $45 in late videotape charges. Murphy is just, pay her, Miles. Miles thinks this is outrageous. You could buy a whole new one for half that price, which I looked up. The most expensive VHS you could buy was about $26.95. I found this in a New York Times article based on the fact that Spielberg, interesting enough, did not want E.T. to be on VHS and he really dragged his feet. Sounds oh. familiar about him not liking yeah. a new thing that is coming into the... Interesting, right? I thought, mm -hmm. huh, so... He's had issues before, and then everything was fine. Miles doesn't seem to want to pay it. And then we go to the blackout in the credits, and you hear Murphy scream the loudest, shriekiest yell that I think I have ever heard Candace. I was worried for her vocal cords when she did this, but it was still hilarious. So it was, if she mm -hmm. has polyps, it's worth it that Miles needs to pay her. And this is the end of what I think is a pretty brilliant episode. It's so fun. It really lived up to my memory of it. So very quickly, uh, we just want to talk about one of the women who we didn't talk about, who played Millicent Bain, Congresswoman Bain. Her name is Jessica James. At first, it was, I think, hard for Jesse and I to find information because she shares a name with a, uh, a lot of people, mm -hmm. including a porn star. But upon more research, we found some, well, I found at least some information I'd love to share with everybody on who she was. Because unfortunately, and this is a little upsetting for me when I found this out, and for both of us, I think, that this was most likely filmed sometime in 1989. It was released obviously in January. And on May 7th, 1990, she passed away at the age of 60 of breast cancer. Now, she was older than Christine Rose, but some of their story does sort of cross paths in a way. Most people would have known Jessica James from her co-starring in a production of a play called Gemini, which started at Playwrights Horizon, which is also where Isn't It Romantic started. Eventually, in 1977, it moved to Broadway. Some people might know it as a movie, Happy Birthday, Gemini. With Madeline Kahn, she played the Madeline Kahn part. An unknown Danny Aiello was in this play. The original production had Sigourney Weaver. Reed Burney was in it. The lead was Richard Picardo from Star Trek. Oh, really? Yeah, and it was a, a really early play that actually had gay themes. At least as of a couple years ago, is one of the longest running plays on Broadway. Now, something else is she has a connection to one of our series regulars because she was an understudy for Elaine Stritch and Company. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Right? Yeah. So for those of you who maybe don't know Company or Elaine Stritch, if you know the parody documentary from Documentary Now of Co-op, mm -hmm. it would be the character who sang the song I've Gotta Go, played by the amazing Paula Pell. I don't know if she ever went on, but Charles Kimbrough was in the original production of Company so they would have most likely worked together. Even if they never went on, on together, they would have known each other. So yeah. that's a really amazing connection. She was also Steve Gutenberg's mother in Diner. 
and was really starting to work steadily in the 80s and the 90s. She's in Easy Money, which is a Rodney Dangerfield movie. And she said that Barry Levinson was going to be really famous and that he was a genius. Oh, that's so sweet. Well, and I, I do, before we cut out, I do just want to give a little from Jesse's favorite sidebars actor acknowledgement to Mr. Fredrickson himself. I forget how to pronounce it. It's, if it was a woman, I'd say Dion. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's D-I-O-N Anderson. It might just be Don Anderson. I particularly know him from Gilmore Girls. Mm-hmm. Plays a recurring character named Bert, who is many of you who are fans of the original Gilmore Girls will know him as one of the very serious historical reenactors that Luke has to deal with. He's just delightful. I also know him from one of the season 11 episodes of Murder, She Wrote. I have a special love of this trend that happened for a while in the 90s where episodics like to go and do an episode in a zoo somewhere. It was just kind of a trope that happened for a while, and he happens to be in one of the zoo episodes of Murder, She Wrote. It's delightful. There's murder at a zoo. But Don Anderson is wonderful. He has a very long, prolific career. Just a wonderful character actor. As you can see, he plays these really great, and this makes sense with him being Bert in Gilmore Girls. Oh, he was also in like Shawshank Redemption. Like the man has worked in a ton of things. And he has a great knack for playing these kind of blue collar men who are just incredibly serious about what's going on around them, often for comedic effect. There are so many great guest stars in this episode, but he was particularly wonderful. And I... I just love Mr. Fredrickson. <laughs> then we have Shuko Okuning, who plays Ivy. And honestly, like looking at her IMDb, there's so much stuff that she did. She was on Providence. She was on Seinfeld. Yeah. That might be what I think I know her from. She recently was on Scandal. Anyway, she's wonderful in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shout out to the excellent casting for this episode in general. Yeah. And we'll see you next time. For another edition of FYI. The Murphy Brown Podcast. And if you are any of the following, a smoker, a manic depressive, a trivia expert, an EST graduate, a fan of Donald Trump, or a collector of Nazi memorabilia, this isn't going to work. Miss Brown, I'm not here to work for you. Thank God.